Good to see you guys here this morning. My name's David. I think I, I introduced myself earlier. I'm the pastor here, and it's, uh, it's good to be here. Glad to have you guys here. Uh, God even warmed it up a little bit so you could make it to church today. Um, dear Skeptic, today we start a brand new worship uh, a series at our worship services titled Dear Skeptic. And what we're doing for the next few weeks is we're going to talk to some of the most common skeptical challenges to the Christian faith right? Uh, these are questions that you've heard, that, that you may have had conversations about. Today, we're going to talk about uh, folks that are skeptical towards the Bible, that say, I'm skeptical towards the Bible, and therefore, I have trouble with Christianity. In, uh, in the upcoming weeks, we're going to get into this narrative, this idea that faith and science are against one another. We're going to talk about that. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about problems that people have with the exclusionary sense that the Christian has, Christianity has in, in, in the gospel and the message of salvation. We're going to talk about problems that people simply have with Jesus. And all those things are going to happen in the upcoming weeks. Um, and let me say, I don't, I'm not going to have time to cover this whole conversation on any of these topics on Sunday morning. This is a conversation I hope to continue. Be happy to talk to any of you uh, about it. I hope you guys are having conversations with each other. And let me give you a heads up. Next week's topic uh, I want you to know about, um, because we're going to talk about this idea that the Christian view of sex is outdated. So we're going to talk about sex in church, which is very new probably to a lot of us. This is an important topic, and we really need to address it. And the reason I'm giving you a heads up is because, um, is because uh, if you have kids, you may think that they're not ready to be a part of that conversation. Right, this is going to be an adult conversation, and um, and I, I, w I want you to be prepared for that. It, li listen, it's not going to be illicit or descriptive or anything. If they watched the halftime show at the Super Bowl with Adam Levine, that was a lot more than we're ever going to do to next week, okay? Uh, but it is going to be an adult conversation, and parents, I want to give you the opportunity to make that choice. So uh, if, if you want your kids to not be here, that is absolutely fine, even if they're older than the sermon session age. And Patrick McGowan, our student ministries guy who was right here when the scouts were up here, is going to be ready to take those kids. Um, okay, uh, let's get into skepticism with the Bible. Before we do it, why don't we go ahead and pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the opportunity we have to talk about something that's challenging this morning. Lord, I pray for those of us that know you to, to learn, to listen, to be equipped. Lord, I pray that I could communicate in a way so that that would be helpful. Jesus, I pray if there are any people who are not there yet with you, with the Bible, that uh, my words would be helpful for them too that they wouldn't come off as hard or obtuse, but thoughtful and deliberate and full of grace, Lord. And, and Lord, I just pray that you would be at work. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Jesus. You are a rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Okay, last year, uh, I took a trip to New York City, and I flew out of Hobby Southwest, which, uh, because I bought a budget ticket, was not that wonderful of an experience. Ever, anybody ever done that on Southwest? You're the last one to board. And when I got on the plane, I had to find the spot for my luggage. And then I ended up in between two full-grown men on the plane, which is not cool, right? But it wasn't that bad a flight because the guy on my left in the aisle, 
immediately fell asleep, which was nice. And um, <laughs> I guess I may have tranked him or something. No, uh, the guy on my right and I actually um, talked to one another. I don't usually do that on a plane. I don't talk to the people sitting next to me. Anybody ever done that before? You talk to the person. What a novel idea, right? It was a good experience. Uh, even for an introvert uh, like myself. And we got to know each other a little bit. I found out he was here in Houston on business and headed back home to New York. Uh, I found out a little bit about his family, a little bit about his life. I shared some of my story. And then uh, we stopped talking. It was a nice conversation. And then we finished. And I had some work that I needed to do uh, to get ready for an upcoming message. And so at that moment, um, I kind of grabbed my Bible and my clipboard where I, I do my scribbling, and I pulled it out, and immediately I could tell as this, my seatmate was watching me, his body language started to change, right? He started to tense up, and he was like looking at what I was doing, and I could feel it, and he waited for a second, and then he asked me this question. He said, is that, is that a Bible? And I was like, yes, sir, it is. I hadn't shared that I was a, a pastor yet at this point. Um, and he goes, pause for a second. I could tell he was thinking about something. Then he says this, you, you don't actually believe that stuff, do you? You don't actually believe that stuff, do you? Have anybody ever heard that before? Anybody had that conversation before? Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that question, right? Maybe you were the one asking that question. And I think the reason I remember that question so vividly is because it is such a clear statement about where he was and actually about where he thought people who believed it were as well, in a way. Uh, he said it in a kind way, but he was saying, I don't believe that stuff. I, I'm not uh, believing that the Bible is the word of God and that you should actually listen to it. But do you actually, do you, do you really believe that stuff? Is that something that you actually, you actually believe in? And, uh, and what followed in our conversation from there was uh, a conversation actually I've had with dozens of people over the years, he uh, shared with me all the reasons that he's skeptical of the Bible, right? And these are things that he had heard, not many that he had actually, actually looked into, but he started sharing things with me that I'm sure many of us have engaged before. He said this, um, the Bible isn't historically accurate. Haven't parts of it been proven false? He said, there, there are contradictions in the Bible, and we know that that means that parts of it aren't true, right? He said, we also, I've heard that the Bible's been changed over time, right? He said, also, the Bible is full of outdated moral teachings on things like uh, uh, slavery and chauvinism and sexuality. He said the, the Bible was a, a product of a power grab, and that's why we hear about these other gospels that didn't make it into the scriptures, right? Haven't you ever watched the History Channel, David, right? And... Uh, and so he shared all these things, and afterwards he said exactly what Mark Cuban says on Shark Tank all the time when he doesn't want it to, to invest. He says, for those reasons, I'm out, right? And, uh, and, and I get that. Like, there are a lot of people who are there who share these reasons, who have heard these things, may or may not, actually most of the time they have not actually looked into them. And, uh, but this is where a lot of people are today, and they reject Christianity based on skepticism that they have towards the scriptures. I want to point out something here uh, to Christians that I think is really important to say. You know, if those challenges are true, 
if those skeptical issues that folks have are real, like the Bible has been changed, if it isn't historically accurate, right? What I, what I want to tell you is the skeptics are actually right to reject Christian faith, okay? Um, and and that, that's because Christian faith is built on the Bible. It is the foundation at which Christian faith uh, is built. Without the Bible, we actually don't know what Christian faith really is or looks like, right? We know the gospel, the story of Jesus' life, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote about it, right? And, 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 and in addition to that, the Christian worldview is also built on the Bible. The, the, the way that we understand and see the world as Christians is through the lens of the scripture because it's through the scripture that we believe God has actually spoken to us. And so when we move from our, our, our old or natural ways of seeing things and try to then live as disciples of Jesus, what we try to do is seek the heart and mind of God for our lives and the world around us as it is revealed in the Bible. That's how we know the heart and the mind and the will of God. And so if you remove the Bible and say, this is not God-breathed, which the Bible says of itself, you say, no, that's not true. This is some sort of human invention. On what basis do you, do you guide Christian thought or life, right? You, you, don't, you don't have any basis for that. The scripture is the way that we know who Jesus is, and it's the way that we know the story of Jesus. And that was actually the, the, that was actually the way the church has always seen the Scripture. And, and without the Bible, we don't have Christianity, okay? Here's the other thing, uh, something that's worth mentioning that I think folks who grow up in church miss. This idea that God, the all-powerful creator God, would speak to you and I authoritatively through a book is an absolutely incredible idea. It, it, it is, it is jaw-dropping to those people who have never heard it before. Be, be, because think about this. Uh, God would have so many ways to do that. He'd have so many different ways to reveal who he is. And, and for some reason, he chose this way, right? And it's not just any book, right? This is a book that's been written over thousands of years, through dozens of different authors uh, in multiple uh, cultural contexts that God has somehow woven together to tell this one unified story of redemption through Jesus Christ, right? That's incredible. That, that is not an easy thing to, to swallow for somebody who hasn't been grown up hearing that it's true. And, and I think we need to acknowledge that because um, if you didn't grow up in church, and, and uh, you were educated in, in, in this skeptical, deconstructionist, postmodern era that most of us grew up in and, and have a living in, of course you're going to have skepticism towards the Bible. It, it's actually, uh, in some ways, a very healthy thing to have skepticism towards a very significant claim like that, right? And, and, and so uh, I, I get it. Um, but I would also say this, just because it is an incredible claim that God spoke to us through the Bible doesn't mean that it can't be true. Okay, that, that's a really important thing. Uh, I, and I would hope that a person who is truly open, even from the position of a skeptic, would be open to the possibility that it's true, that God really did step down into history through the person of Jesus Christ. And, and, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul wrote about it and told us the story of redemption that we were to carry into the world from here, here on out and live our lives by. 
And, uh, and I would say to you, dear skeptic, if you're out there or you're listening, are you willing to be open to that possibility, right? If we could deal with the challenges that you have to the Bible, would you be willing to deal with the challenge of, of Jesus to your own life, right? And, and, and that, that's where I think the rubber hits the road. And that's what I'd ask you, anybody who's not quite there yet. Um, we're going to deal with just one challenge today. There are so many we do not have time to get into all of them, uh, but this is one that has become a lot more common in, in the last decade, and it's this. The Bible has been changed. The Bible has been changed. Uh, I imagine some of you have heard that before. You've seen that in articles. You may have had that conversation. Uh, it's this idea that the Bible we have is not fully accurate, that it in some way has been changed over time, or was changed in its original story when the events of Jesus' life first happened. And this phrase, there's a phrase that comes to mind here that's really actually become pretty common in the postmodern era because of postmodern thought, and it's the second one. History is written by the victors. How many of you all have heard that before? Yeah? If you're not familiar with it, uh, this is that idea. What people are saying when they say this is that when you read a history book, you need to pay really close attention to who the author of it is because history is written by those who survived it and only give us part of the story. So in other words, right, uh, the, the history is written by the people who won the war or took over the land or had the opportunity to write down the history and those who would give us a different story or, or telling of the way things went would give us a fuller picture, right? And so we ought to be skeptical when it comes to his history books because we're not getting the full picture. And so this is a really common idea. It's actually pretty accepted. Um, and, um, and when it comes to the Bible, what's happened is that many people have simply applied the same logic, right? Because history is written by the victors, the Bible must have been written by some sort of historical victor right? Uh, probably the Bible was a manipulation of a real story by people who wanted to consolidate power and build a movement, right? And this is the idea kind of behind the Bible has been changed. And you know when it really took off in our country was when the Da Vinci Code was written. This is when this idea actually became popularized. And even though that book was fiction, and it wasn't given any real historical credibility by any real historian, what it did is it suggested to the general public in the United States, man, maybe the church has been telling us an incorrect history. Maybe this is the victors who are telling us the story of Christianity. How do we actually know who Jesus was? How do we know that he didn't get married, right? How do we know that there hasn't been some greater church conspiracy to get power and, and money. Look at all the problems in the Roman Catholic Church, right? As according to the Vinci Code, aren't they, these the victors writing history? You know, it, it suggested these things, and suddenly this idea really started to groundswell in, in our country. And let me say, there's credibility to this argument. Um, we, we know that the victors do write history. I think that's a true statement. Um, we, and we can see it uh, historically. We know that those who colonized America tell a different version of history than many of the Native American peoples whom they displaced. Right? We know that. We have uh, much more ancient historical records where there are warring tribes 
uh, actually in, in Mesopotamia, where Jesus was at, and one of them will tell one story about a war where they won and whooped somebody else, and then this other tribe will talk about the same war, and they'll tell a much different story about who won that war. And, and you can see that there are conflicting narratives here. And so we, we know that this happens, and, um, and we know that, uh, th- 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 that it's happened historically. There's evidence for it. Here's the question, though. This is the question that I think we really need to ask. How do we know that this is true in this case with the Bible, right? Is there actual evidence to support the fact that the Bible was written by some sort of historical victor to consolidate power or to start a movement. And, and, and in order to make things work, they manipulated part of the, the real story, and the disciples stole the dead body of Jesus, claimed he was resurrected, and then, and then started a movement, right? And this is actually probably the most common explanation of the resurrection for folks who are skeptical today. The question is, is there evidence for that argument, right? That's, that's, the, that's the most important question. I really want to draw here from the work of uh, someone named J. Warner Wallace. Uh, I've mentioned Wallace before here. He's a really interesting, unique voice in this conversation because Wallace was a criminal investigator, um, just like you see on, on all those CSI shows that used to exist. He used to go into crime scenes and try to determine what happened. And, uh, and Wallace, as an adult, was a skeptic towards Christianity. He actually said, that's what I believe, that Jesus' body was stolen from the crime scene. And, and, and they made up a story and started a movement. But he said, actually, Wallace looked at the evidence for it and, and actually became a Christian. And so let me share with you some of his thoughts on all this. Wallace says one of the most important parts of an investigator's work is something called motive detection. You're trying to determine why a person committed a crime. What was the reason that somebody would have had for doing this? And after years of work in this field of criminal investigation, what Wallace said is he's found there are are three essential motives that folks have uh, for committing crime, uh, and in his case, a lot of times murder. And, and in fact, he'd go on to say, every time you do something wrong, it boils down to one of these three things that you're going to see on the screen here. Financial greed, sexual lust, or uh, relational desire, or the pursuit of power. That's why human beings do things that they shouldn't do. That's why you've done things that you shouldn't do. That's what Wallace would argue. Um, we either want uh, to, to get money, some sort of financial gain, we have some sort of relational or sexual desire, or uh, we are wanting to, to, to gain power or maintain power, and that's why we do things that are wrong. We really are that boring, right? He says even other things um, that, uh, that come to mind here, like jealousy, hatred, revenge, or anger, you can actually boil them down and see one of those three things at its root, right? Money, sex, or power. And so when Wallace goes into a crime scene, what the question he's asking is, who would have benefited from the perspective of one of these three motives, money, sex, or power? That's every time what he's learned to do. Here's where this is helpful for our discussion on the Bible. If history has been edited by the early Christians, and what we have in the Bible isn't what actually happened, we should be able to find a motive somewhere. Actually, we should be able to look at the life of Jesus or some of these uh, early leaders in the church, the disciples, 
the apostles and see uh, their motivation for it. And actually, it would boil down to greed, to, to lust or relational desire or power. We would be able to see that. And we, we would then have, have a reason to believe that history has been redacted. Um, but I, and I want to point out, um, this is a test that we do need to apply to Christianity, but it's not just a test for the Christian church. It's actually a test for every single religious movement when you study its history, right? You should be able to apply this test to uh, Islam, to Buddhism, to Hinduism, uh, and, and, and what actually you find sometimes is this is a hard test for some, some religious movements. I'm not trying to take a pot shot here, but to illustrate something, Mormonism really doesn't do very well in this test. Um, if you look at the life of Joseph Smith, uh, all three of those motivations were there in the way the movement went, right? Uh, Joseph Smith uh, had significant financial gain from his movement for, from leading the Mormon church. Uh, Joseph Smith took over 30 wives as the prophet of the Mormon church. Um, Joseph Smith led what was at one time the largest standing militia in the United States, right? Power, right? Lust, greed. We see all those things in, in, in the Mormon church. And, and so the question is, what do, we, what do we see when we look at Christianity? Can we make a case for some of those things happening in its early leaders? And um, where, where's the motive, right? So let's look at them, power. <clears throat> Were the Christians motivated by power in the early church? Here's, here's the interesting thing. All but one of the early disciples, those who contributed to the writing of the, the scripture of the Bible, all but one of them died a martyr's death, right? There, there was no power gained there. The, the, the other one, John, was exiled to the island of Patmos, probably because Christians at that moment in history were being persecuted so bad this was his way to, to, to leave and to survive. Um, uh, the Apostle Paul, who becomes a part of the early Christian movement, um, he, he was a Jewish elite religious leader and stepped down out of that position in power uh, and ends up going to a place where he's now leading this little sub-movement of Christians, and he gets arrested and himself, uh, we think, dies a martyr's death, right? There is no evidence in any of the early Christian leaders and, and authors of the Bible that any of them gained any kind of power from becoming Christians or leading, leading the early Christian movement. So, so that's one. What about greed? Similarly here, uh, we don't have any reason to believe that any of the early church leaders gained anything financially from becoming a Christian. In fact, we have evidence to the contrary. James and John in the Bible we, we know that they actually probably made a pretty good income, and when they chose to follow Jesus, they left it behind to become a part of Jesus' movement, right? Uh, other disciples, Matthew was a tax collector. That's a very lucrative position that he leaves behind in order to follow Jesus. Early Christianity, I've talked about this before, was a movement that was largely uh, composed of people who were poor, who didn't have resources. Uh, and so when you look at it, greed isn't any kind of motivation for the early Christian church or, or any of its leaders. None of them got rich from being a part of Christianity, okay? Uh, lastly, lust, uh, relational desire. Is there any evidence here when we look at the lives of those early Christians? And uh, what I can tell you is there's not. There's not even a smidgen 
of evidence when it comes to lust. Because one of the interesting things that we have outside of the Bible and the historical record is notes from people who are looking at Christians who are living in this incredibly promiscuous sexual Greco-Roman world where they were doing basically anything and everything and noting how the Christians didn't participate in this activity. We have multiple notes from early church fathers, one named Tertullian, who, uh, who says, um, you know, we Christians are willing to share whatever we have with one another except our spouses. Uh, why would he say that? Because that's weird, right? It's because in the Greco-Roman world, that wasn't an uncommon activity. It set the Christians apart, and it's not just Christian leaders saying that. I think Josephus in the Jewish record mentions a, a very similar thing about how odd the Christians are in this way. When you get into the Bible, there are dozens of prohibitions against sexual activity uh, that the Christians were, um, were hearing and, and led to live up to. It didn't mean they always did it. But it does mean that it was part of their religious belief and the way that the movement went. And so if you're a horny toad driven by lust, right, you're not going to become a Christian. That wouldn't have made any sense at all. You would have had a lot more opportunity not in the Christian world, okay? Like, so, so, so think about this. We, we just worked through all three of the things that Wallace said are the, the driving motivating factors for um, for, for manipulating the story, for changing the scripture. And there's not a, even a hint of evidence for a single one of them. Why would the Christians have done this? Why would they make up a story? There's, there's not good evidence for that being the case. Here's another important part of this argument about the Bible being changed. What about those people who came later? Right? What about maybe not the first or second century Christians, but the third or the fifth or the eleventh century Christians? How do we know that they didn't change the Bible? And I, I really do not have time to do this justice because there's been a lot of incredible, excellent work here. Jeff McDowell has done some of this uh, in the past. There are other voices today. Um, Wallace is, is a good one. Uh, but long and short of it is when we look at an ancient document, one of the ways that we assess whether or not what we have today is, is accurate, it's the same, like it hasn't been changed, is basically you get all the pieces of that book that you have written and you found in the archaeological record, and you kind of are able to line them up over time. And you get your oldest copies, right, which are closest to the events, and you kind of see how they matched up in the 5th or the 11th century compared to what you have today. And you know, this is very simple, very logical, that you have a good, accurate representation of what was originally written if this document is the same as this document, right? You kind of see that? Well, here's, here's the, the, the long and short of it when it comes to the Bible. When we do that, when we take all these manuscripts that we have and we kind of make this tree of, of historical manuscripts, old, very old, and, and the more recent ones we have, what we discover is that, man, they are all the same. There are no significant historical differences in, in any of these documents. There's no significant theological differences in a single one of these manuscripts. We have more confidence in the Bible than we'd have in any other document in all of antiquity. In fact, the reason for that is because there are, are thousands of more copies of the Bible than any other document that we have in, in, from, from antiquity. Uh, it, it's incredible. In fact, nobody doubts 
whether Plato's Republic was what he wrote in 380 B.C. But everybody's wondering, is the Bible trustworthy? And I get that because the claim about what the Bible is is very different. But when you just compare these things uh, records to records, man, uh, the, the Bible is, is the book that we are most confident in in all of history that what we have today is what actually existed when it first was written. And don't, that's not just David talking. The, there are historians, Christian and non-Christian, who, who, who would believe that. This is one voice, uh, a really important textual critic over the years named Sir Frederick Kenyon, who said this, The last foundation for any doubt that the Scripture has come to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. So he's saying, there is no reason to doubt anymore. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the book's of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. He's saying, he's actually saying this debate's over, right? We know that we can trust the Bible. Um, and, and actually, that's not to say that there isn't minor little differences in some of those manuscripts. You probably, if you've watched the History Channel, heard a person like Bart Ehrman come on and say there are thousands of differences. Let me tell you, um, trying to be kind here, uh, that's not the full truth. Um, there is a lot more going on, and he may be motivated by some other things uh, as well when you actually look at that, at that story. Um, you guys can have confidence in, in the text of the Bible. Um, uh, here's another thing that people don't consider. Uh, you know, the Gospels and the New Testament was written very early after the events at which they occurred. Actually, from a historical um, comparison account, as early as anything else, we have uh, records that, you know, some of Paul's writings are 10 to 15 years after the events. The Gospels, 30 to 50 years after the events. That's actually very quickly. And one of the things that that, um, that, that does is it actually gives us confidence in the texts that were written because if a, an author was to lie about what actually happened, here's the thing the people who were alive who saw it would have read it and heard about it and stood up and said something. This isn't true. This didn't happen, right? I want you to notice something here in the Gospel of Luke that a lot of us just skip over, but it's actually really important um, uh, from the historical perspective. It's this, verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It's like an introduction. He says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, uh, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So what's he saying there? This is Luke who's writing this story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And he's saying, I want you to know, most excellent Theophilus, and anybody else who reads this book, I've investigated these things. I've talked to the eyewitnesses who were there, and I want you to know this is a history that's been tested and that you can trust. This is the claim that he's making about his own work. And, uh, and, and if you're skeptical towards that, you would say, well, yeah, I get that. I see what he's saying, but that's a circular argument. If he's lying, of course he's going to begin his book by saying, I'm not lying. Uh, you know, <laughs> like this is what we all do when we lie. We tell a lie, right? Maybe you, you did it as a kid. You know, you had to, you told a lie and you had to spun a web. 
to, to make it happen. Maybe you did it last week, right? But, but we know this. We get this. Like, I understand that. But this is, this is where this is a problem. That argument doesn't work. If that was a lie, right? Like, when little brother tells a lie and older brother's standing there, what does older brother do? He says, no, mom, that's not how it happened, right? And that's exactly what people would have done historically if what we had in the Gospels wasn't, wasn't the reality. Um, and, 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 you know, just to give another example so you can see this on a large scale, what would happen if I started to say, uh, <laughs> here you go, Aggies, that in 2018 at the bowl game, right, the Aggies absolutely got their butts whooped by NC State, Right? Would you Aggies be able to remain quiet about that, right? No. <laughs> we know you wouldn't, right? And that's because it didn't happen, right? Like there was a different reality. I would have tried to rewrite history in a way that wasn't true. And what would happen is people would have spoken up. There were, what, 30,000, 50,000 people at that game who wouldn't have corroborated that story, right? It's the same concept when it comes to the Bible, right? Uh, Lies that are told in recent history don't make it very far. And so when Paul says, like I mentioned, uh, 15 to 20 years in the book of 1 Corinthians, he makes a claim like this. After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen to sleep. He's talking about the resurrected Jesus appearing to five, oh, over 500 people. When he makes a claim like that, He's not only making a big claim that would need to be corroborated. Actually, what he's saying is, why don't you go find some of those people and ask them whether or not it's true? This is actually what happened. Go, go talk to them. Uh, and, 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 you know, this, the, there's just a lot of um, details in the New Testament that actually give a lot of historical credibility to what is written there. Uh, think, think about this. There's a story in the Gospel of Mark where 2,000 pigs fall into a lake and die, right? Where demons are driven out and into some pigs and they fall into a lake and die, which is incredible, right? That's not something you're just going to make up. Like, Johnny, that did not happen, right? If he told me that, my son. I, but but, but here's, here's the thing. These were small towns. These, there were people that would have known that. It would have had economic impacts on their lives. If, if an opponent of Christianity didn't believe that, didn't think it was real, what would they do? They'd go to the town and say, did this happen, right? But, but here's the thing. Those stories made it in the gospel. They survived it because why would you tell that story if it wasn't true? Because it's so hard to believe, right? Why would you do that? The, the other thing that the, that the gospel authors do is they, um, they give the names and relationships of different people to one another, Right? If you were going to make up a lie, like you would say, look, there was a miracle that happened, um, and there were some people there that saw it, and this guy uh, started walking again after he was lame for his whole life. Uh, but you wouldn't give a name, and you wouldn't say who the people that were there happened. Uh, you may not even give the detail of how the healing occurred, right? Um, but the gospel authors don't do that at all, right? Uh, for instance, there is a, uh, a time in, I think, Mark 15, where it says Simon of Cyrene, so a man and the location where he was at, carried the cross for Jesus, and that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. So those are some details there. And what Mark is, is saying by providing those details is, hey, go find Simon. Go find Simon, who's father of Alexander and Rufus, and ask him about this. You, you guys see what's happening? 
The, the Gospels are incredibly believable because they're written in a way that, that they can be tested. And, 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 and here's the long and short of it. This has been done for, for decades, for so long. And every time we have looked into the archaeological record uh, or we, we've discovered that, that the Bible actually corroborates with the best understandings of history that we have. These details in, in early in the Gospels make it almost impossible for, for these authors to have made up things about Jesus and, and the story. And, and, um, and, and I, 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 I'm, I need to finish up. I've gone too long already. But um, there's so much more to say. Uh, but, but I would say, where does that leave us, you know, and what, what we've studied already? If there isn't any good evidence for the Bible to have been changed, to manipulated, to be manipulated by these early Christians. And if these early Christians were willing to die to get this story out and told, where actually does that evidence point? That it's, that it's true. And there are non-Christian scholars who, who don't want to believe in the story but are willing to admit that if you actually look at this historically, there's a lot of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And what I, uh, what I want to say to you Christians this morning is I hope this conversation has helped you and equipped you to have some of these conversations with other people. And if you're a skeptic here this morning, not all the way there, I, wa I want to say to you, man, I think that these, these Christians were willing to give their lives for this message because they actually saw it happen, because it was true. They believed it. They saw a risen Jesus, and there's a God who loved us so much that he sent his one and only son into the world so that we could have eternal life. And that's what I believe, and dear skeptic, I'd pray that maybe today you could get a little closer to following Jesus yourself. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for, um, I just thank you for, all these incredible people who have done all this incredible work, like Jay Warner Wallace, uh, like Jeff McDowell, like all these others who have helped us have great confidence in the scriptures, Lord. I thank you that you have spoken to us in this credible, marvelous, unbelievable almost way through the Bible. But Lord, I thank you that, that you've also provided all these evidences for it to be true. And I thank you for Jesus we thank you that he is active and living in, in our lives. And Lord, I pray if anybody's not there yet, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd open them up to that possibility. And Lord, I pray that they would learn to follow and trust you. It's in the name of your son we pray, Jesus. Amen.